How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session podcast. Today's guest is Michael Lyons, who serves as president and general manager of oncology at Myriad Genetics, where he brings over 20 years of experience in the biotech, medtech, and pharmaceutical space. Michael holds an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management, Northwestern University, and he was also recognized by Pharma Voice magazine as one of the top 100 most inspiring global leaders. Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine also named him as one of the top emerging leaders in the world. Michael, welcome to the Leadership Jam Session. Hey, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a longtime listener. Flattered to get the invitation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Looking forward to jamming with you. So you ready to jam? I am not musically inclined, but I'm ready to jam. That's okay. Neither am I. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your leadership journey and your leadership philosophies or some guiding principles that are important to you managing people. Yeah, certainly. No, I don't have any magic words, but to be honest, I think that if you work hard, be brilliant at the basics, be fair, recognize that there are good days, bad days, good quarters, bad quarters, good years, that in the end, being true to yourself, your values, company's values, what you're hoping to achieve as an organization, it will lead you to success. And so my job as a leader, and I do take that as a very serious privilege, is to help the people that I have the honor to work with, whether there's a reporting structure, dotted line, straight line, up, down, left, right. It's really about taking the time to listen to your colleagues, actively listen, understand what's going well, where they need some help, making certain that they're okay, being empathetic, understanding what's their challenges, and then helping them solve them. My job is to clear hurdles, make, make the runway clear for takeoff, have everyone at their very best. I don't have any fancy magical sauce or words. I'll just say that for me, it's really being focused on executing and delivering today. And I think the team responds to that. I think that they're recognizing that what we're operating in is a spirit of transparency, in candor, what you see is what you get. And you know that when you come to work, it's not only in a trusted environment, but it, we're going to build and have a culture where people care about one another and support one another to be able to achieve the same goal. Do you remember like when you started shaping your principles or, or was anyone that, that kind of impacted you to help mold you? Yeah, I think that for all of us, we've had moments in our lives where things stuck out. There were individual people. Of course, for me, and as well as many of your listeners, it was my parents, the, the principles they instilled in me, treating people fair. My father was a police officer. My mom was a homemaker. And really just being humble and focusing on what's most important. They also instilled a work ethic. So I think I've had every job I could possibly imagine, whether it was making pizzas, parking cars, or you know, taking out the trash. But when I was a, when I was a teenager, I had a very fun job. I was 17 years old. I was a parking valet in New York City, and I would take any gig that was open. So whether it was a bar mitzvah, a wedding, some kind of celebratory birthday event, 
And I was the guy in that nylon red jacket as you pull up to the front of the banquet hall that would take your keys, park your car, and then run back and take the next one. And when you're a parking valet, things are really busy at the beginning of an event. People are arriving and things are really busy at the end of the event. People are leaving. But in the middle hours, there's nothing to do. So the restaurant owner would invite us inside and give us a plate of whatever they were serving, chicken with sauce. Mm-hmm. And I would sit in the back of the room and watch the, the event. But on Thursday nights, this particular venue had their retirement dinner nights. So every Thursday, there would be someone who was at the end of their career and would stand before others and give their retirement speech. And I had the chance to watch that every single week during my formative years. And what was really present to me as I listened was never, was what they spoke about was never about the accolades they received, the trophies they won, the promotions they made, that big sales award trip that they got. Instead, I looked around the room and saw that on a cold, snowy, rainy Thursday night after work, people got in their car and drove there because they wanted to recognize and celebrate that person. And that person standing at the podium was talking instead about the friendships, what they accomplished together, and how they were able to really enjoy their career and their professional time together and make friendships. That was a really important moment in my life. I took those lessons at 17 and 18 years old and brought them into my college years and then my professional years and how I try to live today. I recognize that at a certain point, there's someone waving a checkered flag and my career will come to an end. And I want to look back and know that I did the best thing that I could for people, for the companies I've been lucky enough to work for, and stand in front of my boys and my wife, knowing that I gave it my all and I treated people fairly. So it was very important to me then, and it's very important to me now. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's a great story. It's the classic, the leaders that it's not about them, right? It's about their, their employees. Everything they do is for their employees. And that's what grows that followership. That's the catch with leadership. Everyone loves to read a book on leadership or hear something on LinkedIn on leadership. Mm-hmm. But the catch is in order to have leadership, you need to have followership. And that doesn't mean that people report to you in an org structure. Mm-hmm. It means that they'll follow you from organization to organization. It means that as you help build, and I do mean help, help build a vision for a company or product or whatever it is that you want to achieve. And then you put the strategy and the execution behind that vision that they're supportive of you. And so that requires followership. A lot of times people just think, hey, I'm in charge. Do what I say. That (laughs) will never last. Right. And and that person won't last either. Yeah, it is amazing. And for anybody that's new to leading, it's very important to understand that when you become a leader, it's no longer about you. It's about your people. And that it's kind of like the first step that starts that followership. Right. I'll challenge that a little bit. You would never become a leader if you thought that it was ever about you. That's true. If you're a sales professional, individual, listening to this as you're driving across highway to get to your next appointment, you're part of a team. Mm-hmm. You may not have direct reports, but you have colleagues that count on you that you'll text or call throughout the day. And whether you realize it or not, you're having an impact on them. And as you grow as a sales representative into a a manager or even just an individual contributor, if you think it's about you, people are going to move away from you pretty quickly. So as you grow throughout your career, it's the way you grow is, or let me put it this way, the reason you grow is because it was never about you. Mm -hmm. 
Well said. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's talk about organizations that have great cultures. From your perspective, at a higher level, how do you approach building a highly successful culture? Because you've had a lot of success building out teams and cultures. How do you approach it? You know, when I was younger and I was gaining different experiences, not knowing, of course, where they would end up, I used to hear the word culture. I'm talking in my late 20s, even early 30s. I used to hear the word culture and roll my eyes. Say, all right, okay, yep, let's get back to work. Let's execute. Let's get the number, hit the number, drive, 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 drive. And as I think back about things I did well and things I could have been better at, I wish I was more experienced or more mature at those younger ages because as I, as I sit in the chair today and I look back at what is the most important factor of an organization, and I'm lucky that I became sober to this fact 15 years ago, is culture. And I've really thought a lot about it. And when I think about culture, I believe I have somewhat of a unique experience. When I finished business school, I was very fortunate that my organization sent me overseas. And I got to live for three to four years in other countries. And I lived in Thailand and Japan. I had a chief marketing officer role that had 12 countries within my responsibility. That's 12 different cultures, 12 different languages and currencies and P&Ls. But, you know, you're getting a chance to understand national culture. You're getting a chance to understand religious culture. You're getting a chance to understand how your corporation's culture is in that country. And then coming back to the United States and focusing on biotechnology, medical technology, and now in the, the genetic space, how culture is adapted in our own organizations. And I wasn't presumptive in what I think culture was. I really wanted to take time to understand it, given that collective experience of all angles, right? You can't just put blinders on and say, nope, it's just our corporate culture. Because people, are part of that culture and everyone comes with their own backstory or their own diversity that contributes to that culture. And what I've concluded from this, from years of really deeply thinking about it, is that culture cannot be, a corporation's culture cannot be a collection of personalities. It has to be aspirational and people need to contribute to that aspiration. And with that shared vision, you can now build an organization that directly relates back to it each and every single day. It can never be just words on a wall. It can never be the aspect where you, where you forget about it or you just say it at your quarterly business reviews. You need to hire against it. You need to onboard against it. You need to do merit evaluations against it. You need to check your numbers and as well as check your culture as you are building out the organization or as you're running the organization, because if that piece becomes compromised, then everything will fail. People will not have trust. People will not work hard. The best thing that you can do in, in a culture is do two things. Hire. Hire correctly, because you want to hire for domain expertise and you want to hire for values. And if the values are aligned to the corporate culture, which everyone is not only bought into, but helped build then you're going to have a very successful organization. Would you agree that it has to be driven from the top though? Is that fair? It has to be driven from the top. 
And again, I think that is the key word there, that if you are general manager or president of a business division, if you are a chief commercial officer, a CEO, the, the head of finance, the head of technology, or anything outside of the healthcare space that you're in a leading position, it's your responsibility to drive that because, again, if you don't onboard against it, hire against it, you merit evaluations against it, if you don't keep it alive and part of your everyday, every week, every month practices, then you're part of the problem. If you're not being truly honest to what it is that people have signed up for, there's only so much time that we have in our careers. And every year that you wasted at the wrong organization is a year of your career that you're not going to get back. Mm. And so if you're signing up for an organization that is promising good culture, it is on the responsibility of the officers, of the presidents, to make certain that it's active. So the key word in your question was drive. But what's most important is that you have the passengers to do it. And those passengers are ones that have to be part of the process of wanting to be there, to contribute to the culture, to say, this aligns with who I am as an individual and what I want to accomplish in my career. You can't just sign up for money. You can get money anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely all interconnected, right? I do remember one of the organizations I worked at in the beginning, anyway, it was a great culture. And, and even when, and it, it was, to your point, everything you just said was exactly how it was. So the values, the culture, it was all built into everything. Year in evaluations, merits. Even when we were hiring, uh, we always looked to make sure it was the right fit from a cultural perspective. And I will say though, what was interesting is you just reminded me of this, that I remember sitting at a meeting once and the executives made a decision to take the values out of the year-end process for directors and above which made no sense to me whatsoever, because if they weren't being measured on it, right, then, then they weren't responsible for, for living it. At least that's the perceptions from the employee's point of view. I think that was the start because things actually did change, not for the better either. So it was interesting that, that you talk about, we has to, I agree, it has to get weaved into everything. It does, and I'm a true believer in accountability. You own your career. And so, when you choose to join an organization, you should do your homework to make sure that it's the organization that has the values that align to what it is that you want out of your career and also the way you want to be treated and partnering and so forth. I feel very lucky being at Myriad. I think what our CEO, Paul Diaz, our chief commercial officer, Mark Ferrati, they are newer to the organization or newer to Myriad in organizations around 30 years. And they have made hard choices but really kept an organization's culture to be innovative, entrepreneurial, focusing on patients. I align to that. And they do it in a very respectful, professional way that I'm proud to tell people I work at Myriad Genetics. I do, I really do mean that. When I was at Eli Lilly and Company, Lilly partnered with Myriad for their product Gemcitabine or Gemzar. And I remember that partnership at Tesoro. We partnered for our PARP inhibitor with Myriad Genetics. So I've had a tremendous respect from afar of this organization to be part of it and seeing how the new leadership is not only doing what's best for the shareholders, they're honoring their fiduciary responsibility, but they are also making certain that they don't lose themselves, that they're focusing on people first. So I'm truly honored to have this opportunity and I really mean it. I'm trying to do my very best every day to pull it through with the team as I knew. They're getting a chance to know me. I show up every day who I am. I don't put on airs. 
try to just execute and, and get to the end of the day. It, it's hard at at high levels, right? You're at your level two to make sure that that the culture that you're trying to establish and or maintain gets cascaded all the way down. It's got to be a challenge at times. It is. I think the key though is that people understand that you are human. Mm, that you are authentic. At, at my organization, I'm humbled and flattered and absolutely love what I do. I have a nice title. I get a chance to make the decisions with others. But at the end of the day, I'm just some dude. I pick up our dog's droppings in the backyard throughout <laughs> the afternoon. I take the trash to the junkyard on Saturday. I'm dad. I'm a husband. I'm a, a son. It's really about focusing on family first. And I'm a, a dad, a husband, and then a businessman or business leader. I think when people can relate to you and recognize that he gets it, you know, I often tell the organizations that I have a chance to partner with that I started my career in sales. And that's really important for people to connect to, for those that have carried the bag, because when you're in sales, you go through a very humbling experience of customers slamming the door in your face, mm -hmm. of saying no. And you go back week after week after month after year with the same data being told no. And then suddenly they say yes. Mm -hmm. You did nothing different. The data was the same, but it was your determination. And in that time, you've shown up and you have sliced your fingers on hot food trays, opening it up for lunches. You've spilled every form of yeah, food yeah. onto your clothing. You, you understand getting back in your car, like, what do I need to do differently? And then you go home to your family and you have to provide for them. Mm -hmm. And I think when you can relate to people, it's not just business. It's being family first and, and making certain that your, your authenticity as a, as a, person, as a family member, as a friend comes across because that's really what we're all doing this for. As I mentioned, there's a checkered flag. There's that podium speech one day in your life where you're going to look back and know, were you successful? And it's not about yes or no, it's about how. And so, yeah, it's, it's important to drive change. It's important to drive values and it's important to hit your KPIs, but it's the people you do it with and having them understand that you have their best interests at heart, that you're doing this together, and that you're relatable, and that people can understand, hey, this is the guy who understands what it's like when I, when I don't hit my number. Now, that's never an excuse, but the fact of the matter is, is that careers are not built by one quarter. Quarters go up, quarters go down. Careers are built by years, hard work, determination, success, relying on others, being humble, being vulnerable, and having those around you help pick you up. Yeah. All right. A couple more questions for you. So I got to ask, what was, what was your biggest mistake looking back on your career in math? Biggest mistake? I, I'll just say all of the mistakes. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, I have some cringeworthy moments. I remember when I was a first time marketer and we were at a regional divisional meeting and I put my foot in my mouth in a very big way. I remember many times thinking I had the right answer. I was the one, I knew this, and this had to be right. And I put all my eggs in a basket and boy, was I wrong. I think ultimately it's not about the mistake you made. We're all going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think it's what you learn from it, that you don't do it again. And that honestly, and sometimes people can't help themselves. They can't get out of their own way. 
But sharing that experience with others who are about to make that mistake and say, hey, listen, don't go down that road. And here's why. If I was to think of anything individually that I would recommend for those that are listening, or at least I'm going to say still listening, is, is learning how to fail fast. I do remember that there was an individual that I hired and I was skeptical when I made the decision. We had a, a, a deadline. We had to get somebody. This was the person that many people had been pointing me to. And I just had a feeling in my gut that this wasn't right. This was a person that was basically, I was voluntold to, te- to hire. That's like a whole nother episode as, as yeah. well on, on that topic. But yeah, yeah, but, but, but we hired this person and around six months, I started to see the bolts shaking on the wheels and nine months and 12 months, the wheels coming off. And I really wish I would have had the intestinal fortitude to make that decision at that time. This is a long time ago. I wouldn't make this mistake today. But I went along to get along and recognizing, well, how, how could all these people be incorrect? I wish I would have learned to fail fast at that stage. Because what happened then is we had to remove this person from, from their role. And then I had to find the right person and onboard and train and, and so forth. And that took another six to nine months for that person to really start cooking with gas. And I look back at it and I think, ah, I lost two years. Mm-hmm. We could have really been better. So when I think about it, it's again, learning how to fail fast, trusting your gut, having the, the, the strength, but political savvy to push back and make certain that you are not coming in as a know-it-all. That's not like, hey, Michael's here. Now it's time to save the day. It's working with others, making certain that we're putting the right people in the right role. Again, I talk about this with our teams, but the three things I really focus on are people, Mm -hmm. process, and product. The three Ps, people, process, product. By people, I do mean the aspect of connecting, connectivity, the human element that we chatted about this morning, but I also mean the infrastructure. Build the scaffolding of an organization for what or who, what skills, what types, what experiences would be best in those roles. And then you put those people in those roles. Instead, unfortunately, a lot of organizations say, well, we got Larry, he's been here for X amount of years. What do we do with him? Well, let's just put the team around him. And unfortunately, that creates mm-hmm. bottlenecks and log jams and so forth. So building the right infrastructure, having the right people, the process is about active listening, finding out what's working well, what's not working well, where are their bottlenecks, where are their log jams, where can we be able to clear that runway and let people do the work that we hire them to do. And then ultimately is the product. In our biotech space, biopharmaceutical diagnostic space, oftentimes the product is the product. This is what we have. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it rests there. You have to use all the tools in your tool bag, whether it's how you show up, how the fuel force executes, your mixed channel marketing, the positioning of that product makes certain that even in a bit of business where there are many similarities in products, that yours is differentiated. Mm-hmm. That could be in your customer care. That could be in your pricing. That could be in your professionals. And so if you focus on people, process, product, um, and you do your very best, you can guarantee excellence. I always tell our teams, we cannot guarantee results. We can guarantee excellence. And when you say that, you truly need to be specific in what excellence is. Provide an example of what mediocrity is, 
and provide an example of what excellence is. And when you do that, you hold them to that high standard. And in return, you challenge them to tell them, hold me to that high standard. If I'm expecting excellence of you, you should expect excellence of me. That's where people get frustrated with their boss. and say, oh, he's such a putz. But he wants me to behave at this level and perform at this level, but he or she is not doing it. I think that's where that accountability piece comes in. So if you focus on truly delivering excellence, the results will come. You'll have a high-functioning, high-performing, highly engaged, highly motivated team that are bringing the results back to the organization. They're having fun while doing it, and they're balancing that family-first life. And I do think that there are times where that balance will be off-keel, and that's okay. I think of it more as a symphony versus a balance. People think balance and they hear 50-50. I think in the as more of a harmonizing of the elements and the times in your life where you will need to spend a little bit more time and a little bit less time. But you've been able to bring that up in other areas and recognizing people. The last thing that I would say is we don't do it alone. And I am a big fan of recognizing people's families and recognizing people's spouses. Over the years, I've, I've, I've sent notes and cards or gifts of appreciation to someone's wife, spouse, partner, significant other. If they're away on a honeymoon, I'll send a bottle of champagne. I went through this unique experience where I was invited to be the marketing director for, for oncology in Japan. And that was a very hard experience because I was the first expatriate in the oncology business division ever. Not just first American, first ever non-Japanese. I did not speak Japanese. I did not understand their culture. And my wife and I moved over there. And within the first month, we found out we were pregnant mm -hmm. and that our child and son was born in Japan. But we went through that entire pregnancy and that entire challenge in a country that doesn't speak English, in a part of the country that is not highly populated, like Tokyo. We were in Kobe. And so going through that experience and recognizing that it's your spouse. It's your partner. My wife, Shinoa, is a hero. She's a rock star. How she went through her pregnancy for nine months in Japan without her friends there, her mom there, being able to speak English to her physician, I don't know how she did it. She's a rock star. And for me, I try to keep that top of mind in how I remain family first, but also to the people that work for me that are spending their weekends at a conference or an advisory board and then not at the Little League game or the dance recital. Or we're asking for them to fly home with the red eye and they just miss their kids' uh, school production. So it's important to make certain that the spouses, the partners, the families are recognized. Rob, I don't know how much time we have, but I'll tell you one more story. It was my very first official day as acting general manager. And I'd been to this other country. The communities, they get around on scooter. Uh, and I'd been to the affiliate a couple of times, but on this particular day, and they knew who I was. When I got to the office, I went little glass box, table, cup of coffee. But there was a lot of people there. And it was a lot of flurry in the air. And I wondered why. Is this because I'm here? How could that be? They know me. But it wasn't. Instead, it was the first day back for a very popular sales representative who was riding his scooter. And they don't have gas stations like we do. You don't just pull up, put it put it in and then go get a beef jerky, come back. They sell gasoline in large one liter bottles on the corner. 
So you pull up your scooter. There's a guy there. It's like buying a hot dog in Manhattan. And you give him a dollar and he gives you a bottle and you pour it into your tank and then you take off. No stoplights, traffic just crashing into one another. And this individual um, was accidentally had gasoline poured on him and there was a fuse that lit and he was lit on fire. Ugh. And he, it melted his face and it melted his hands. And the day that I was there, it was his first day back at work. And I asked for him to come into the office and speak with me. And um, I, 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 I asked him, what, what is it that you want to do with your time back here? Now that you came back to work for a reason, what is it that you want to do? And he said to me, Mr. Michael, I want to be the number one sales rep for the country. I want to achieve that. And I asked him why. And he said, because my wife and kids don't look at me the way they used to. Hmm. That my family, my town, my, my community, my village, they look at me as if I'm a monster and I don't have value any longer. And my children won't remember the way I looked before. And I just want them to know that I was the best at my job and that I was recognized for it. And I was taken back. And I said, well, general platitudes, whatever I can do to help, please let me know, so forth. About a year later, we're planning our national meeting. In preparation for the meeting, I was going over who the winners are that were going to be recognized there. And believe it or not, this guy did it. He went on to become the number one sales rep for the country and, and was going to be recognized on stage in front of his peers. Mm -hmm. And the way that they do it there is they don't have some guy in a suit like me stand up there and, and hand out the award. Instead, if it's, it's his colleagues who walk to the microphone and say these nice words about the individual before they bring them up. And I was really thinking about that conversation that he had with me a year, almost a year earlier about what he wanted to achieve and most importantly, the reason why. And it was because he wanted his family to understand that he was the best at what he did. So they didn't look at him as a monster. So I opened my wallet and I hired a car service and I sent for his wife and kids to secretly travel to the hotel. Hmm. And I snuck them in the back of the room just before the final recognition. And they got a chance to see it. I really think that had a, a big impact on his life. So I could... Without question. I mean, it must have had a huge impact. Yeah. But to be able to help that guy mm. and have, I, I've been fortunate. I've won awards a couple of times, but the people who mattered to me the most weren't there. So that's why I think it's important to recognize the spouses and, and, and share as, as best as we can uh, the contributions that those people make and, and, and that the individual who works for the company didn't do it alone. Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful story. You know, I often talk about this, particularly with, with my new managers or emerging leaders or new managers, that they don't understand how much power they have, meaning the impact that they can make on people's lives. Yeah. They can make a profound impact on their employees' lives, both professionally and personally. And when I do these workshops, I sit there and, and they kind of have this, this blank stare. And because I understand they haven't experienced it yet from the management side, but there are those who have experienced it from working for leaders that have made a profound impact in their lives, right? Even yeah. on a personal level. And your story just embodies that, right? Thank you. I'll say uh, I've been privileged to work for some great leaders. I could rattle off their names, but your listeners aren't going to know who they are. 
But I will say that there was one individual, and I won't, I won't mention this person by name. He's actually not even in the industry anymore. He left to go open his own business. But I remember I was a new marketer and I had made all those mistakes that I mentioned earlier. And I was going to get my performance review back. It wasn't that I did a bad job. Work was high quality. It was that I ruffled too many feathers. And for this discussion that we were preparing for this annual review, he just said, you know what? It was the middle of the day, four o'clock in the afternoon. He said, let's go get a beer. We left the, the, we left the building, drove to a restaurant and we ordered two Dos Equis, And he just said, listen, you're going to get a review and you're not going to like it. And don't worry about it. It's going to pass. What you really need to do is learn to focus on this, this, and that. If you could focus on that, you have the keys to the universe. And it was a very sobering, honest conversation. I was young, new, didn't know how, how I was going to grow. But it was to the point that you just made, which is you don't understand the power that you have to be able to help others. And this person helped me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known and I would have continued to do the things that were not helpful to the organization. But it's really the humanity that that guy took me out for a beer in the middle of a work day and we just sat there and you know we had a burrito and those seques and, and he, he became a good friend because he he cared enough to teach me what i didn't know and to really take me aside and it had a profound effect instantly i got it and i think honestly in my gut i probably always knew it it's kind of like in those old car radios where you're turning the dial and you can kind of hear the radio station but once you click on that frequency it comes in Crystal clear. And I got it. I said, you know what? You're right. My insecurities of being younger in a highly mature business unit, uh, like oncology, I've been doing oncology now 18 consecutive years. Generally, people that are in oncology are further along in their career. They, they've elevated up to that level. It's not an entry level job. And I came into it at a very young age, like 24, 25 years old. I was surrounded by people that were 10, 15 years older than me that had made all these mistakes. So I was humbled that people took the time to put their arm around me and say, let me teach you this business and not just the what, but the how. And so my, my, I look back at that checkered flag at that retirement speech, thinking about helping others that are coming up behind me. And again, we're, we're all in this together. It's about just helping the others that are around you, doing the best you can for your company, being easy to work with and producing a very high quality product by guaranteeing excellence and making certain that you can bring that home. With people first, right? And, and again, that is how you build a followership. I'm so glad that you brought up the, the, what you do on the personal side in terms of your employees, right? With the spouses or kids or sending flowers or whatever the case may be, right? Those are small little investments that doesn't really take a whole lot of time that just goes a long, long way. I think so. I, I really do. And again, I, I think back to my wife. She is selfless. She is truly a selfless human being. And she has put her career on the side for mine. Because when you travel internationally, you have to get visas. If you don't get a visa or a sponsored, your career is on hold. And so I think about what she has sacrificed and what she's contributed. And I know that she's not alone. There's a partner, a son, a daughter, significant other, someone that our employees go home to at night or pick up the phone and call that just recognizing that they're part of this is really, it's not just, it goes a long way. It's just, just the right thing to do. 
Your story was fantastic. I, I really do appreciate you sitting down with me and, and kind of just sharing a lot of your wisdom and some of your stories are fantastic. And I have no doubt that anyone listening out there is going to walk away with a lot of great tips and best practices that they can, that they can incorporate with their teams. So Michael, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your stories and your leadership journey. Very powerful. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. I love the podcast and it's a pleasure getting a chance to talk with you today. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from it. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.